Ready? Once again, a big thank you to Wild Earth Australia for their continuous support and being a company that really believes in the adventurous lifestyle. Now, if you need any gear for your next adventure, running, hiking, camping, climbing, survival, you name it, they have it. So go to the website wildearth.com.au and put in the 10% discount code Diaries of the Wild Ones, all one word, capital letters. Free shipping Australia-wide, they even ship internationally. I managed to get the ultimate explorer, Dr. Jeff Wilson, back for another wild story. And this is another wonderful tale of adventure. If you don't know Jeff, he is three-time world record holder of the longest journey ever by kite across the Sahara Desert, first ever kite surfing expedition across the Torres Straits between Australia and Papua New Guinea, fastest unsupported crossing of Antarctica under wind power. If you didn't hear it, go back and listen to episode 20 where Jeff tells us about his insane journey across Antarctica for the world record. Now Jeff is about to set off for an attempt at another world record. This time he intends to break the current record of 5,200 kilometres for the longest solo unsupported polar journey in human history, crossing the coldest naturally occurring point on planet Earth, the summit of Dome, Dome Argus... Dome Argus, I think is how you pronounce it. No human has climbed Dome Argus on foot, a true adventure first. I have to admit, at the end of this episode, I was left shaking, thinking about what he is about to put himself through mentally and physically, and he is doing it all for an amazing cause. Jeff is doing this not just for his own personal goals, but to help fellow human beings, to help women who are suffering from breast cancer. So please, people, find it in your heart to help his cause and go to thelongestjourney.com.au and donate. All money raised is going straight to the McGrath Foundation for Women Struggling with Breast Cancer. Jeff Wilson. We're back. Are we on? We're, we're back and we're on and I am so stoked because... So we did an episode with you about the craziest adventure or one of the wildest ventures you've done, which is crossing Antarctica for your world record, the accomplished world record that you did. Mm. And it was such an insane episode. So go back, if, if you guys haven't heard it, go back a couple episodes ago and listen to this wild story because I've had so many hits on it, so many comments. And that's what I was just actually telling you just before I just pressed record about that episode is still just going off and I'm getting so many comments about that. And I was wondering about that. Do you actually realize like how, because like we're just sitting there having this conversation, but that's what blows me out of when I get these comments about how much you're inspiring people. Like you're just doing something you want to do. You're, you're, you're spreading awareness. You're pushing yourself in all these ways. But do you actually realize this domino effect that it has? Oh, listen, I think, um, you know, occasionally I'll get a, a direct message or a private message from someone who recently, actually, there was a guy who didn't even know it was something that I'd said um, and it was weird. I'd said something, somebody else had written it down and turned it into like an Instagram tile. And it was um, when you're in the worst day of your life, you don't realize that it's creating the character 
for you to prevail and have the best day of your life. Yeah. And they just put this guy uh, reflected on a lake walking in the mountains with this over-the-top Jeff Wilson at the bottom. Anyway, this guy was a mate of Jade's and he'd, he'd um, gone through a recent divorce. And he just had this thing, this tile on his home screen, on his phone. And it was only after he kind of got through it and realised, you know, that he had built character and his life turned around that he realised that it was something that I'd said randomly off the cuff months earlier. And you kind of go, you know, essentially spending months at a time solo in a tent is a pretty selfish endeavour. So when you get something like that happen it kind of justifies that selfishness yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Do you realise, I had a lot of comments, and we did, we did touch on this in the last episode, but um, I got a lot of comments, just people just like, wow, this guy's insane, this guy's crazy, this guy's wild. Yeah, do you sometimes look at yourself and just go, yeah, okay, I am a little bit crazy with some of the stuff that I do. I know, I know that you, um, you plan so well and everything's so, it's that calculated risk we're talking about, but it's just like, just sometimes you ever just even have a giggle at yourself and be like, all right, this is what I'm doing next. Yeah, I mean, this next one is so big that you, you start wondering, man, I hope I'm not writing checks my body can't pay. Yeah. But you kind of, it's a bit like, you know, I don't know, as a budding lawyer, you wouldn't take on a big oil firm on your first case, you know. You, yeah, you build up to you it. You build up to it. So your capacity grows over time and your your confidence. And I feel oddly more confident with this one than I have with any other journey because I kind of feel like it's come at that perfect meeting point yeah. of physical strength and mental strength. And yeah. um, it was good this morning training on the beach with two younger guys, you know, 10, 15 years younger than me. And they've skipped a few trainings, so my fitness has progressed since the last time we trained. And, like, I'm not pushing hard, but I'm really stressing them. Like, I can see their bodies are feeling the training, and we're hauling three tires through soft sand on the beach, and then sprints, doing hill sprints. And that must feel great just for you, and... And not even from an egotistical point of view, but just from a way that you can feel good within yourself that of where your level is that it's comp- competing or it's working at the same level that a younger body can work at. Yeah, and I think like, it's just measuring because often like I'm, I find like I'm the best one to measure my training because I know exactly what I need when I get in country in, yeah. in the field, whereas a personal trainer might come from a different angle you know they've yeah. never been there how can they train you for what they've never been in so it's nice to gauge yourself against someone who you've trained with, with a month before and see that you've shifted in your fitness yeah because you can get a little bit lost i do find i push myself more if i'm training with someone so do i actually i found i trained with a guy yesterday and um just push myself twice as much as what i normally would and i'm feeling it today i'm yeah. burning i'm burning jeff you're my one of my favorite guys to hear stories from. I've read your book. It's absolutely amazing because you have been this adventurer your whole life. And there are so many stories. And like I said on the last podcast, we're just going to keep trying to get you in here and just going to keep trying to hear these stories about your life because it has been such a wild life. But you were just kind of touching on, you just mentioned before a bear, a bear story in Alaska. And um, I want to try to get that story out of you. Yeah, I'll tell you this one. I mean, if, if I look back, over probably seven or eight near-death experiences, the one that came... You just was, said seven or eight, so cat has nine lives. Yeah, Careful, yeah, yeah. Oh, no. Careful. <laughs> Treading the fine line. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, if there's one that wakes me up still, it was this bear. Like, it, it was the most violent, malevolent force that I've ever met in my adventure career. Like, you know, death by storm, death by crevasse, um, you know, a car roll over, you know, in the Sahara Desert, whatever it is. There's no personality to that badness. Yeah. You know, it's just a storm. It's just bad luck. But this bear had the most aggressive killer streak in any animal I've ever seen. And, you know, that so this is, is a grizzly bear? It's a, it's, let's set the scene. So where? Yeah, it's a Kodiak. It's, it's a big Kodiak bear up in the right in the north. What were you doing Alaska. in Alaska? Mate, let's wind the story back. Yeah, let's, let's go. <laughs> I'm go. already on edge. I can't no. wait. I can't wait. So um, my son Kit was 17 and he decided he wanted to do a gap year. And he did a lot of climbing progressing his climbing and then um he said dad do you reckon you can get time off work to do just you and me a month somewhere cool and uh i said mate for sure listen and then i spoke to sarah my wife and said listen this is going to be low key no risk we'll take it real easy um it's just about me having time with my son before he goes into the world and gets caught up and you know i could hear that song what's that song where he talks about his dad you know, oh, uh, you know what I'm Cats in the cradle. Yeah, cats in the cradle. Yeah. So I had that in my mind going, I don't want to be that guy. Yeah. So let's make the time. Anyway, I, I found this mountain in uh, right up high in the Brooks Range called Mount Dunarak. And bear in mind, Kit and I are not alpinists. So this mountain was first climbed in 1953. And it basically looks like a mini Armadublum. Like it's this incredible spire in the middle of the Brooks Range. And it's got a river on either side, the most majestic mountain. I said, listen, Kit, let's go climb this thing. You know, we had to do some research, find out how to get there. We couldn't get there other than getting dropped by aircraft 150k inland. Right at the top of the Summit Range, there's a lake there called Summit Lake. And and then we approached the sponsor, got some inflatable kayaks. And then Wild Earth came on, we got the gear. Next minute... You know, we've done the training, but we've done barely any time in kayaks. So we get to uh, a little place called Battles, which is the most northern settlement on earth, and uh, bar some Inuit villages high north, way above the Arctic Circle. And, wow. Um, Can you adopt me? <laughs> <laughs> what a trip to do with your dad oh my god oh, crazy yeah crazy we had we had way too much gear we had cameras we had drones we had climbing gear inflatable kayaks about 90 kilos each yeah of shit like, yeah. and we get dropped at this lake pump up the kayaks and we paddle the length of the lake which is about half a k and then it just turns into this mush so for two days, we're dragging these kayaks through mud. Absolutely, like, disastrous. Uh, the tundra, which is meant to be permafrost with global warming, yeah. is now perma-mud. You're kidding you me. Know, it'll freeze in the winter, but, you know, rather than being relatively easy to cross, it was a nightmare. So, you know, this father-son trip's degenerating. The mosquitoes were the size of 50-cent coin, just about suck your blood dry. And I've one. heard they're terrible up Horrendous. there. Horrendous. And anyway, we're punch- punching through. First night we camp and there's a little trickle that we managed to get into, make a bit of distance, and then we're dragging again. And uh, early on the second day, 
I come through a little little rollover. It's like a, the first of the rapids, and I had um, a dry bag not properly cinched down with the sat phone in it. And Kit, because it had been so flat to that point, had the main camera on his lap. I came through and I yelled back, hey, just be careful, there's a rapid here. Kit rolled over and got trapped under his kayak and the <gasps> camera went in and got completely saturated. And while I'm trying to save him and get the camera back out, um, I dropped the sat phone into the water. Oh, no. So we've oh, no. just biggest F up yeah. on day two. So we've lost our main camera and part of the reason for doing the trip was to get great images and you know the sponsors were after images and film and we've lost all comms because i always take two forms of communication but on this one i'm thinking listen it's eight nine ten days we're in a relatively soft wilderness um i'll just take one sat phone and sat phone's gone kids getting hypothermic like i you know quickly realize this is going from bad to worse. So pretty soon we forget about the electric. How long do you reckon he was in the water for? So he's flipped over. He's soaking wet. He's lost the camera. Has the camera completely lost or is it just soaked and broken? No, just soaked and buggered. Yeah. And Kit's, you know, really upset. Yeah. Because he's lost the camera and blaming himself. And I'm blaming myself for the phone. And, and then I look at him and realize, man, we've got bigger problems coming. Um, so we get some fuel, pour it on some wood, get a fire going and get him warmed up. And, you know, we're on day two of this trip and it's brutalizing us. Like, we've totally underestimated. Yeah. This is a black belt wilderness. We've dropped in with no respect for it and got yeah. spanked. And then I'm starting to realize, listen, we are, we hadn't even seen the mountain yet and we've lost all comms. So I was meant to be calling into Sarah every evening to say, hey, this is our position. We're good. The local Alaskans were so awesome really refreshing they they don't even make you sign anything they just go what day are you coming out okay if you're two weeks late we'll come and look for you like yeah they're not coming anytime uh soon so we go to bed and we're you know trying to get everything i had rice out i I had the phone over the stove and and just couldn't get it to work and couldn't reassure sarah that we were okay so next day was that stressful could you sleep yeah it was it was pretty horrible because i'm just going well you know we're here to climb a mountain yeah we haven't even got to the mountain we've lost comms can we in conscience and responsibility climb with no ability to set up that's a hard decision to make too yeah and we still had an epurb yeah but you pull an epurb and it's like a national response so huge expense so anyway next day we get up and we do a little bit more kayaking and then get to this gorge where it drops two thousand feet and there's waterfalls in it no way we can kayak it so we have to go over land again and it took us two days to drop all our gear down 2,000 feet across this shale face that the caribou climb obviously at the beginning of the spring to go further north but you know I don't know how they get up it they we were trying to protect it using cams and then rope and the cams would explode the rock it was like so you imagine a thousand old records packed together you put a cam in it and the cam would just explode the rock. So there was no safety. So that's the climbing the climbing cams, yeah. Yeah, climbing cams. How far from civilization do you reckon you were? Oh, we're probably two hundred and fifty K north of Battles. Yeah. So uh it was probably an hour and fifteen aircraft flight in a seaplane to get to the lake. Um but you know, there's You're nothing. pretty much as remote as as it gets. Yeah, you yeah. can't. There's no one there. Yeah. 
and up the top there's just dead caribou everywhere because when they migrate they get stuck in the mud or die of old age so you're kind of walking amongst these dead creatures dead um, with this eerie kind of feeling and then when we got to the bottom of the 2000 foot escarpment then you're into bear country for the first time and we saw a big hole at the bottom where a bear had dug up roots and then there was fresh berry you know like purple berry dripping scat everywhere had you had you done much bear training or had you done any training like knowing the territory that you're going into with those types of animals like here in australia like you know you, you, we learn to understand like crocodile territory or, or shark territory or something like that but like going into such a foreign culture did you understand like you know what do you got up there you got the the mountain lions you'd have mountain lions wolves bears yeah they had, and you hear wolves at night but no, the bear was the main concern. And we had this hilarious briefing at the gates of the Arctic National Park. They, most people go in, they're so blasé about bears. But having met them, I would, you know, you've got to understand how to deal with them. Yeah. Um, and this lady was just hilarious. I, I, she was like a comedian, big, overweight American woman in a khaki outfit. And she was, like, animated and, and pretending to be different types of bears, how to recognise a happy bear from an aggressive bear. And um, they had these two mammoth tusks on the wall. She kept, like, getting so excited that she'd smack her head <laughs> on the end of the mammoth tusk. And Kit and I were just sitting there watching this show. And we didn't kind of realise how life-saving her talk would be at the time. We were just laughing at, at how animated and passionate she was. But it's one of those things where you'd rather someone be passionate about a subject yeah. And uh, then be blasé and Well, she was boring. engaging, She was she? so engaging. And we remembered everything, and she ended up saving her life, basically. Um, so her big thing was do not ever give quarter to a bear. So if you meet a bear on a trail, if you run, it'll incite a charge straight yeah. away. Or at least curiosity. They'll be like, that's prey. Yeah. Whereas if you make yourself big, make a lot of noise, get your bear spray out, which is like a massive mace canister. Yeah. Um, and then if the bear charges, don't hit the spray until it's right on you because if you spray too early, it, it missed too much and, and uh, the bear will just run through it. So you've got to hit it fair in the face from about 10 feet. Oh, and, my God. Yeah. When you see a 200, 300 kilo bear moving at you at speed, you know, to wait to spray it when it's nearly on you, like 10 feet is only one body length. Yeah. So it's like less than a second before it hits you. So she's going, listen, don't don't hit the spray until it's absolutely committed. Um, if you run towards the bear, that's probably a good move, you know, but you might incite uh, protective behaviour if it's got young. Just make sure you hold your distance and don't look scared, don't run. So that was in our head anyway. The Which is fighting human nature, kind of. It's, it's like I, fighting our animal instinct. It's like yeah. you, you get scared, you just want to run. First thing you want to do is just run like hell. Yeah. So you're so, starting to see you've just you've noticed that you're starting to come straight into thick bear country. Well, because the valley is so steep as well, there all the wildlife is pushed into the river edges. So we're picking away over cobblestones and having to do three loads with thirty kilos each load. So for one k forward, we're doing three shuffles. So it's just a nightmare, and I can see Kit's morale is. He's dropping like he's tough, but this is like way more than we'd yeah. bargained for. And we kept looking at the river. It was wild, like 
class five rapids like well beyond our ability i mean you'd have to be a professional kayaker to get through it so we keep moving our stuff forward finally on like the fourth day we see the mountain and it's this incredible like jaw-dropping moment when we come around the bend in the river and there's this monolith like just towering above the rest of the mountains in the area it's got snow over two-thirds of it you can tell it's the same rock that we have just tried to scale down with no protection yeah um and it just looks well beyond our ability um and we're trying to look at look for an easy way up is there a saddle something there and you're starting to get some real nerve tension going on and that same day the river settles down enough that we think okay let's move the electrics forward so we we move the electrics forward five kilometers and by now um we have limited use of the camera we've been able to get some of the functions back um the viewfinder wasn't working but you could take photo on full manual mode and then review them on the laptop so we had at least that back yeah. sat phone was still dead so we're, we're now three days without communication with home and starting to wonder yeah. okay at what point are they going to initiate a rescue how um having your son there does this change the the dynamic of how you do things like you you have more of a protective like are you taking less risk like when you're looking at that mountain compared to like say you're with a mate compared to having your son there is it like a different calculated risk that you're doing yeah, and I think it, it definitely did change that because you're, you're aware, you know, if something goes wrong, Sarah's going to lose, you know, half a family in one hit. Uh, but also, you know, we were there to have a fun adventure, not a life-threatening yeah. bloody debacle. And it, it was getting tougher and tougher and tougher. And then that day we loaded the kayaks up and they weren't behaving real well because they were, they were too heavy in the water weren't very manoeuvrable but we were making distance for the first time on water which was phenomenal but your heart's beating out of your chest because your some of these rocks have got big eddies blow them and it's not so much that you think you're going to drown but you're going to lose gear and if we lose a kayak um the expedition's over and we're screwed and you know yeah so we we managed to make a fair bit of distance but just before we got back to the electrics 5k away I came over a rock and uh, it had like a horrible eddy on the other side and I yelled out to Kit. So an eddy, that's the, where the, um, they're normally around rocks and it's the big turbine kind of in the water and it's going to... Yeah, big how, how would you? Yeah. It's like it basically came up over a rock and then it recycles back on yeah. the other side so it, it sucks you in there. Yeah. And uh, I luckily I pulled straight over, pulled my kayak on the bank because I thought Kit... Um, if he hit something, it could flip him. Um, I just got my kayak up and I see him come up over the top and it just drills him, flips him out, and then he sucked in the eddy while his kayak's taken off down the river. I jump into the river, swim to the kayak, get it to shore, and then get back to him and he's managed to make it to the bank. But but it's really rattled him, like he got held under yeah. for a considerable amount of time. He's already absolutely teeth chattering cold and just basically you know what are we doing here dad plus your adrenaline's like, been hiding for so long yeah he was just oh, yeah. you know we were here for a climbing trip and we're not even going to make it to the mountain like this is uh how are you guys camping like are you just setting up tents putting a fire sleeping in sleeping bags yeah we're just setting up tents as high as we could get because it was a real tricky 
it was basically just stones where the river probably cleaned out when they had floods and then this wet tundra. So you couldn't camp on the tundra because it would just seep through the bottom of the tent. But if you, you know, if there was more melt upstream, we had to constantly wash the level of the river. So you try and camp as high as you could, making sure that the kayaks and everything are up, but you didn't get caught if the water levels rose overnight. Yeah. So camping, and it's pretty uncomfortable because these round river stones that you're trying to sleep on, um, and you're progressively getting more fatigued because you're listening for bear sport at night. And every morning we'd get up, there'd be bear prints around the tent. <gasps> so you, they're getting more and more prevalent. And we hadn't seen them, but, you know, the footprints are enormous. Like, I, I had no idea bears could get that big. They're huge. Yeah, wow. Your foot would fit into it one and a half times. Like they're just enormous. Like they look like a Bigfoot footprint. Yeah. Anyway, Kit gets out. We have to light another fire. We're both wet, hypothermic, and we're realizing, man, this is brutal. Like you could, you could die of drowning, die of hypothermia, die of falling off this loose shale. There were so many ways it could have gone horribly wrong, and it was an adventure that was meant to be a, you know, a relatively soft photo trip. Really. Yeah, just father and son bonding. Father and son bonding. <laughs> yeah. and anyway, we ended up having not a Barney, but a real like, what the hell are we doing here? Yeah. And then I'm looking at Kit going, well, mate, there's only one way out. There's no way. Like we either backtrack to Summit Lake and get picked up or we kayak and walk out. There's no physical way a plane can land on this rough water. Um, it would just flip. So you use it literally going to the point where you're considering or he's considering just giving up, like getting yeah. out of there. Well, you know I mean, what I mean? it was pull the pin. And by now we're at the base of the mountain. So you can see yeah. this thing and it's mist swirling. It's the eeriest looking mountain. And I'm just looking at it going, I can't believe somebody's climbed this thing. Yeah. Like in 1958, like pretty basic yeah. um, gear and um, looking at it going, man, I think it's beyond our ability on a good day but i think if we'd had two working sat phones um we would have considered it but a bit of a miracle happened that night so we're in the tent we're having this discussion kit what do we do and then suddenly i managed to get signal on the sat phone for the first time but only 30 percent of the buttons are working so i can scroll through the phone book and Luckily, I had Sarah's phone put in the phone book because I can't push the numbers to dial her number. Managed to get it up on screen and make a call, and it held long enough. So this is the fourth day now with no word, and it rings through, and she goes off the chops. She's having a meltdown on the other end, you know, and I explain what happened, and she's savvy enough to go, well, where's your secondary phone? I explain that I didn't bring one. And she's just gone off, going, you know, that's a rookie mistake. You're an idiot. You should have done, you know, yeah. better prep than that. You've got my son out there. You know, she's tearing strips off me, quite rightly. And then I explained to her that we were at the base of the mountain. And she just said, listen, you, this is no longer a climbing trip. It's you getting home safe. I had a bad feeling about it. I've had four days from hell wondering where the hell you were. Just get my boy home 
So I hang up and it's that usual conversation in your head where you're going, well, she has no appreciation of the shit we've been through for the last four days. Yeah. And I have kept him alive through some pretty brutal conditions. Um, but I had no idea of what was to come. <sighs> I, love, I love your story. <laughs> oh, God. God. I, I, the thing is, too, that, that harshness of that environment, too, and it's like maybe, maybe it might be hard for some listeners to kind of picture this, but you're up high above the Arctic Circle and everything is just so raw up there. You know what I mean? Like falling in that water, that's ice cold water. It's like suddenly as soon as you do something like that, it's like, yeah, survival mode kicks in because hypothermia is going to be so close to you. Like you're saying, it's like, so I'm sitting here and, and everything you've just said for these last four days is like, you must be so drained with the, how high on your adrenaline must be. You're like your, your body's using so much adrenaline. Yeah. And, I, and there's also this extra strain where you're like, man, we could have... We could have just gone to Yosemite Valley or or somewhere in Australia and just done a straight climbing trip. Yes. Really simple and easy. Yeah, so that, that's taking the, the morale, like the mental, because you're questioning everything. Yeah, questioning why we're here. and Because it, you know, it wasn't attached to a charity. You weren't doing it for anything other than father-son time. Well, you didn't have the mental... You weren't mentally set up for such a challenge. No. You, you know, so it's just like you weren't... Re- like, if you're going in there knowing what you're coming up against, it might have been a different story, you know, because you would have had that... You would have been mentally prepared for it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it It just... I don't know. I, I think the reason it was one of the toughest journeys was just realising that we had created this hell, this yeah. living hell, by by not really understanding. I mean, the Alaskans are incredibly tough people, but they just don't cross it on foot. Yeah. They fly everywhere. They shoot things. Anything that moves, they shoot. Um, they don't really subject themselves to getting any attacked by bears or, or walking through tundra. It just doesn't happen. In the winter, they'll ski places, but generally they're vehicle only. Yeah. Um, they don't get involved. And here we are, you know, like I said, it, it was schooling us. And every yeah. day I'm like, man, I, I cannot believe how tough it is to make. Just to make three kilometers, we were hiking nine you know, shipping stuff forward and breaking gear and um, it's just tearing tearing your clothing. Everything's grabbing at you. There's brambles, briar, um, absolute, you know, mayhem. Um, and then Kit and I are in the tent looking at this mountain and we had this discussion pretty clearly to try and des- decide, okay, do we listen to mum or do we just go for it? Yeah. And I, I could see Kit. Like he, he's just got so much of his mum in that he's much more considered, yeah. much more sensible. And I, I could see he was not going to want to climb that mountain. Yeah. Um, he's an it, extremely intelligent kid too, actually. Uh, yeah. Every time I talk to him, I think he's way ahead of his time. Yeah. So, and he, he's, he's like the modern breed of adventure who's, you know, using, using the social media, using the system way better than we ever did. Um, and it's perfect. You guys... You've lined up for a really good twenty years of adventuring because you can use the the appetite and the social media to fuel these incredible trips. But he's looking at it, going, "Dad, there's plenty more mountains. You know, this this trip, nothing has gone right for us. Um, so why is it going to change up on that loose shale?" And we're looking at the spine of just 
death rock. It's all loose. It's covered in deep snow. You, you couldn't put an anchor in. And then I'm looking at him going, yeah, but Kit, will we ever be in this position again? You know, will it be something that on your deathbed you think to yourself, we should have had a crack? And I'm going, should we not at least do the base? Let's have a look at the base and then see what it looks like higher up. And then um, I said to him, well, mate, there's no pressure tonight. Let's sleep on it. We're both fatigued. We'll make a decision in the morning. And outside the tent were the river shoes, which were like a just a quicksilver booty, and then the climbing shoes, which were like a full scarper climbing boot with uh, crampon fittings, and we were drying them outside the tent. So he hit the hay, and there's movement outside the tent. Again, you could hear river stones moving, something big, and we're just waiting in the tent going, mate, there's a bear going to come through the side wall. Nothing happens. Get up in the morning and Kit's beat me out of the sleeping bag. I go outside and he's dressed in his river clothes. He's got his Gore-Tex pants on, um, the quickie boots on. And that was the answer. He packed the climbing boots and I said, mate, we're not climbing, are we? And he said, Dad, honestly, we just need to get home. This is, we're not even a third of the way home yet. And uh, we're now on day five. We're going to run out of food. The mountain looks ominous. The weather looks ominous. And we just don't have good comms. Like you, if something happens up there, that phone could go on the blink. You can't even dial the numbers. Um, I just don't think it's safe. And I've gone, yep, that's fine, mate. Good call. So we packed the kayaks and moved. And we had a pretty trouble-free kind of two days, day five, day six, day seven, going into the seventh day. Could you, once you took out that mountain, could you kind of relax a little bit or were you still kind of on edge? It was still... Still a bit on edge because the river was still wild. Like we had we had rollovers, we had gear that was floating off and then um, then we started to get into these things called sweepers which um, <clears throat> were where the bank, the bank, the river would turn, say, to the right and then the forest on the left would get underrun and you'd get these big evergreens fall into the river and the current would suck you into them and then pin you into the tree and flip you and drown you so we're coming around the corner and more and more of these sweepers everywhere and the first sweeper we'd never seen a sweeper didn't know what it was come around the corner bang i hit it and i'm sucked under and luckily it was a smaller tree that kind of lifted up and let me go through i managed to get to the kayak and pull it to the bank on the inside of the bend dried out and we're like man that that could end so badly so then we learnt to, to hit the corner on the inside and kind of edge your way around so that you didn't get sucked into a sweeper. Um, and then there were rapids, like we were getting sort of class three rapids, which is well beyond what we'd expected. And the kayaks were starting to behave a bit better because we'd eaten some food and burnt some fuel. Maximum distance now. So we're, we're you know, within probably 120k um, of the exit of the national park. But once again, the bear, bear presence everywhere. Yeah. And uh, we, I think it was... A, a had you seen him, like, even on riverbanks that you'd gone through? You hadn't, hadn't visualised a bear yet? You hadn't... No, no. And we hadn't, like, the wildlife, although it's, it's the biggest national park in North America, this Gates of the Arctic National yeah. Park, um, people hunt all around the edges, and the wildlife passes through the edges, so they're used to getting shot at. 
And I'd say by their behaviour, there must be some poaching yeah. in the park or at least, you know, they understand man and they understand getting shot at. So everything you see disappears in an instant. Um, I remember, I can't remember what day it was, but we came around the corner. It was quite a wide bend of the river. The river was probably 200 metres wide at this point and we could see movement in the middle of the river and we paddled over and realised it's two big male moose with the biggest horns you know, the big rack yeah. of horns with the sun setting, uh, sorry, rising just behind them. So they've got gold drips coming off the, the horns and they're paddling and we paddle in behind them and they're so focused on getting to the other side that they don't see us paddling behind them. Where they get to is like a vertical dirt bank about 10 feet. And I've, man, these things were agile. They literally climbed this vertical bank and then got to the top and shook and all these gold droplets flew off them with the sun behind and Kit and I just gobsmacked didn't have a camera out and one of them smelt us and they bolted gone into the forest like yeah. in, in a heartbeat but just to have that moment with them while they were crossing and then the light I'll never forget that light as they shook behind yeah. anyway but there was a real feeling of the animals being nervous beaver everywhere all along the banks you'd get these little chewed trees that would then fall in and create sweepers yeah uh, but perfectly chewed, just like the cartoons, you know, when your kids, Disney cartoons with little beavers chewing the tree. Yeah. All along the edges. Occasionally you'd see them, but they would disappear the minute you saw them, used to getting shot at, or just a very shy animal. And then uh, day seven, might even been day eight, actually, day eight, we're not far. Like, we're now thinking, hey, we're, we've only got two more solid days paddling and and we'll get out of here and, and um, come back, lick our wounds and come back to this mountain better prepared. And it's early morning. Um, we set break camp, pack the kayaks, and uh, I'm in the lead and probably about 10 o'clock in the morning come around this corner. And uh, the river's probably only 30, 40 metres wide quite fast flowing and I come around and just see movement on the right hand bank and about 50 metres from the edge of the bank is a big brown bear um, and he looks like a big rabbit like he's he's on his haunches nibbling at berries and I flare the kayak and hold my position probably 10 metres off the edge of the bank and I go and get bear and Kit's turned and he's held about a boat length behind me and we're holding our position by gently paddling because we've kind of come into the lee of the bend of the river. Yeah. And this bear looks friendly. Like, I, I'm like, hey, it looks, they're not so bad, you know. But it's a big animal, like a big bulk. Like, I, I would almost say like a small car, like a Suzuki Swift yeah. size body. And then he stood up and I'm looking at the top of his head going, mate, that, that'd be nine, ten feet above the deck. Like, that's a big animal huge with a just a big thick chest and midriff and uh he he just had some berries in his hand around his mouth and uh, i'm holding my position and i don't know what we did or what happened but he went from looking like a rabbit to a big standing bear to full charge <gasps> like in an instant and you wouldn't even did you have your bear nothing. spray like me because you're not walking yeah, no i had not. my bear spray on my chest and a flare gun on my chest, but no weapon yeah. at all. And you wouldn't have had time. Like, you know, the Revenant, 
you know, the Leonardo DiCaprio bear scene. Yeah. I, you know, that thing, it's violent, but it doesn't capture the violence of the bear. Like, this thing went from mildly interested rabbit to psychotic killer predator. And one of the most effective predators on the planet. Like, it, it just had this incredible bulk that was earth flying out behind it foaming at the mouth and just on us so quick like it went from covered the 40 meters to the to the bank of the river in it felt like a millisecond i didn't even i probably made one paddle and then in my brain i'm going okay the river's going to save us the the distance he's not going to enter the river he's just mock charging he'll run to the edge of the river and then that'll be in the end of this and in my brain i'm I'm like, this isn't too bad. We can manage this. This is not out of control yet. And then he hits the water full speed <gasps> and just keeps on running. How deep's the water? Can he run in it or is he swimming? Well, he kind of he kind of surfed with his chest because he had so much momentum. Imagine you drive a car into the water. It doesn't, the wheels don't hit the ground for an instant. Like yeah. He was surging and then this big bow wave went over under the boat and I had to steady myself not to fall in. And then he starts striking because he's out of his depth. Starts striking towards me and he, he literally finishes, oh, I would say, a boat length in front of me. It was like he hit a glass wall. Just went boom, hit it, and then let out this big exhale, you know, exhale of air. And all, all I'd seen were claws and teeth and just this incredible, I couldn't really describe it, but it was like... Um, think of the worst evil you've ever felt or seen and the only other place i could i could say i felt it was in bandache after the tsunami there there was 250,000 dead in the city and i got lost in a in a wealthy part of town where the houses were still fairly upstanding but there were bodies everywhere and you couldn't walk without your boots popping through someone's back or dogs eating babies and you know it was just this like the end of the earth kind of feeling and this bear pervade that same sense of dread and death and it was so unnecessary like it yeah. just didn't meet the situation so he was coming straight for you he's coming straight at he, us, was, he was coming to to attack to eat to, he was looking at you as prey oh without a shadow because i've looked online the people that film mock charges and yeah. the bear will He'll come and then he'll shuffle and show a side to show how big and scary he is. And then he'll come and shuffle. And it's more like I'm, I'm playing, I'm interested. Are you to eat or are you to run from? They're not sure. This thing was, without a shadow of a doubt, coming to kill. And, you know, I, I still cannot explain why he stopped because both Kit and I were convinced that was it. Kit was convinced he was going to see his father die with a bear on top of him in the water I was convinced that nothing I could do could protect myself because it would be like an ant fighting a dog. Like, you you just couldn't. Had you started reaching for the bear spray? Or no. I, or it just happened, just, so it happened so quick. And then when he, when he basically stopped his charge, we were holding our position because that's what this lady had told us to do. And whether that's what made him halt... I still don't think so. I think he was so committed that one more stroke and he would have been on the front of the kayak. Um, 
so something supernatural. It was like he he had a big hand, the hand of God, or yeah, something just, just something just bopped him on the him. chest, and it was almost like a mime artist, you know, stuck in a box. He'd hit this invisible wall, and once again. We lived to tell the tale, but did, did he did, when, when he stopped? Did he hold aggression still? Like, did he sit there with like what did he? What was his behaviour? I uh, it was almost like say if you saw a dog chasing a ball and it ran into a glass door. Yeah, it was kind of that level of surprise. Like it, it was just this full tilt, and then boof. And the, and the thing is, too, for for people at home, you know animals because you're you're a veterinarian. And I think you know that's I mean? where a lot of the fear came from because I'm going. Okay, I spent my whole life reading animal behaviour and there was no misunderstanding of this guy's intentions. Yeah. So I couldn't even fool myself into thinking that it wasn't going to end with violence. Um, so, you know, this incredible realisation that this is going to be a painful way to go Yeah. Um, was coming. And just looking at the weapons he had, he had these, like, ridiculous talons on him yellowed but huge teeth um, and just the level of aggression uh, beyond what was necessary you know I often thought you know it's the same thing when you get bitten by an ant and it freaking hurts and you're like hey, that was unnecessary why, yeah. why does that little animal have to have so much yeah. pain associated with it this was the same sort of thing on a grand scale you're like I don't understand is it centuries of us as humans harming the earth that we're now, we're now paying for is it centuries of us hunting in this area and this animal feels that and recognizes it it, it was more than just him wanting to feed yeah um so anyway we it suddenly it was over and uh i lifted the paddle kit did the same we let the river take us and i'm going all i could see was the the fat lady saying don't don't uh let it the distance increase and i'm thinking well he's already committed if this reincites the charge, then so be it. So we drifted, and then he swam back to the bank and followed us along the bank <gasps> and kept kind of showing his side to us, which was more what I'd expected from a mock charge, you know, this kind of bravado. And yeah. um, the river took us around the bend, and then we never saw him again. Um, but at night, that night, like both of us were up, you know, <laughs> big starts. Because you've seen the eyes of the beast. Oh yeah, and this is what I think. Um, we have this disconnect, disconnection to 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 wild animals. We have this disconnection to, you know, that ain't a cuddly teddy bear. Like they're born killers. Like they will just rip anything apart. Like kind of in that scene in in with Leonardo DiCaprio. Except if that was in real life, there's no way he would have survived that. No. You know, as soon as he got him, he would have been gone. Oh, brutal. Uh, yeah, li- literally. Two days after we got out, a hunter in, in at the edge of the park um, took a guide. A, sorry, he was guiding a client into the same area. They shot a caribou. And by Alaskan law, if you shoot a live animal, you have to take all the meat out. Yeah. So it's just to encourage people to hunt wisely and in a renewable fashion. So they, they cut off as much as they could and then went back uh, to base put the meat on ice and then came back the next morning and there's a big male bear feeding on the carcass and they came over a ridge and the bear looked at him and then charged and he hit the guide so hard that his head came clean off his shoulders right in front of the client 
and then he jumped on the client. The client played dead, and he got quite a few flash wounds, uh, but he lay there for about six hours while the bear was finishing his meal, and then when he shuffled off, he crawled over to the guide's body and took the sat phone out, called for help, and he survived. But that was 48 hours after we got out of the park. So we're like, oh okay, this, this could have gone a different way. And even now, like I said to you earlier, of all of the misadventures, probably because it's the most fresh and it was in front of my son, it's the one that we, we don't joke about. Like yeah. it, it still wakes us up. Plus, oh my God. You know, there's, there's one thing nature is like you can play the game with nature, but with a wild animal, there's, there's no playing the game with it. No, but the, the weird thing with this one, like I, I had a, um, a man-eater incident in Botswana a few years ago where Java, my middle girl, who's an, an adventurer and a climber in her own right, just was going through that really obnoxious teenage phase where neither Sarah or I could tell her anything. Yeah. And we'd camped by a, a river with a lot of bear, uh, not bear, um, elephant activity and we'd heard lions mating the night before and in the morning Java was packing a gear to go for a shower at the shower block was about 200 meters away and I said to her listen don't go up there without someone with you um, because there is you know significant lion activity around and anyway about 10 minutes later I look over and she's gone she's gone by herself so I said Sarah Java's done a Java and taken off on her own. Let's wander up there together and just make sure she's okay. So we get up to the toilet block and Sarah goes in to check on her. And I, I walk probably 30 metres further away from the toilet block. And then I suddenly realised that all the bird noises stopped. <gasps> Absolute silence. And I feel the hair on the back of my neck stand up. And there's a big bush about the size of a four-wheel drive in front of me and I'm looking at this bush and I couldn't see any movement I couldn't but I could feel something there and every bone in my body I don't run just walk back so I walk back quietly to the toilet block yell to the girls keeping your eyes on the bush keep my eyes on the bush and I'm I'm calm but you know it didn't it just felt like you know, like if you had a gate and you knew there was a dog on the other side, you didn't trust it, your body's kind of saying, hey, don't go through the gate, not a yeah. good call. So I backed off and then we went to the toilet block and said, Java, you need to get the hell out of here. So we, we all walked back to camp. I hopped in the four-wheel drive straight away and drove back to the toilet block and hopped out to check my footprints around this bush. And there were female lion pug marks that had covered my boot marks within it probably would have only been five minutes since i got back with the truck and i took this photo just to remind myself you know that little sixth sense that keeps you alive we can often dull that down or dumb it down and ignore it but for me because i'm in that wilderness situation if i hear it i'll listen to it and it generally has kept me alive so you know that photo when i look at it reminds me just to always hear it listen to it and then act on it rather than ignore it and pay it's that gut feeling it's that intuition i find it so weird that that people dismiss it 
Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the people dismiss a, a sixth sense or like just a, a feeling, the vibe, you know, like it, or just listening to your intuition. And it's like we have that and we have those feelings for a reason. Well, I think we dumb it down, you know. And even then seeing that line print, I thought, well, the line's got a right to be there. Why was it that I felt so unnerved? So we went to the game warden and said, can you come and look at these prints? And she had a tear in one of her pads that you could see on her print. And um, he said, yeah, I know that line. She's killed human before. He said, you're very lucky you didn't ignore. And, you know, if you'd gone close to the bush. So I'm like, okay, well, hey, why didn't you tell us that last night? That would have been really handy information. Yeah. Um, but he was full of malaria and, and not really thinking too clearly. But, you know, understanding that, yeah, we bump into lines. But the malevolence or the the palpable kind of fear with that one was probably a 1 out of 10 as compared to this bear. And I can't really describe why, but the bear just seemed so much more calculated and, and psychotic. Whereas a line, you know, it's, it's kind of a game. Like yeah. Cat and mouse. And it, and it didn't carry that. We think about how scared uh, most people could probably relate to, like a dog coming at him or charging him, or and and people, because that's something that happens generally in society. I remember a dog attacked me when I was a kid. Now imagine and how scared you are in those moments when a dog's coming at mm. you, or, or or at least showing its teeth or growling at you, and and how how much we fear that. Imagine that that's a bear. Yeah, oh and my I, god, I, something fifteen times the size. Yeah, he would have been. 250 300 kilos like a big big animal so anyway it's day eight now and we're just done in the adrenal glands like a cornflake it it's been trying to keep us alive for eight days now and this bear was kind of the final straw so we sat there and initially we laughed it off go man that was nuts but then both of us realized you know more and more that it could have gone either way and uh, you know, spent we spent the next two days just being sensible. The river got the river got wider, no rapids now, just hard paddling. And then on day ten, this plane goes over the top, and that was the first time we kind of realised we're, we're back with civilization, and um, ended up back at Bettles. What was that feeling like? Oh, that relief, man! I remember hugging Kit on the bank and just going. Man, just to get him home safe. Yeah. Um, and he's so capable, you know. Like, I uh, just realising that his capacity was so high. Um, but, you know, it was a brutal journey and, and probably four or five different ways we could have come to grief in there. I still think about it now and go, man, you know, I could be here having lost a son through drowning or, yeah. you know, he could be here without a dad you know yeah more but have you had the chance to do a soft adventure with him since after that (laughs) did you yeah take a step back and go let's go do something easy yeah we've done just a couple of nights you know sleep and go climb something and take it easy which is magic you know that's really really pure and easy and no stress you know but it it um it's definitely something now uh that we look back on and it's like any bad any shared bad experience creates a real bond afterwards but at the time you're thinking yeah this is horrendous yeah um, but you know later on it's the one that it's the fireside story and creates the bond so i mean that's why we keep doing it why do we keep doing these things because yeah well you went to, through it together yeah yeah so 
It's, it's so funny because it's just how you talk about your life normally is just so out of the box for so many, for pretty much the majority of the population. But it's um, you're right now, you're planning and training for, again, the next big adventure, probably the biggest one that you've done is that you're about to do. Um, take us through what you're actually about to do because it's kind of, it's insane. <laughs> well, it is, you know, and I still pinch myself. I think we're three weeks out from me, oh, just, no, sorry, four weeks out from me heading to Cape Town and then from Cape Town, November the 5th, I'll fly to Nova Sky Station on the edge of Antarctica, take a truck up a glacier to 9,000 feet to the top of the Somo Vecchio Glacier, which I walked up last time. It was just too high risk. As a family guy, I I wouldn't do that again. Um, Get to a place called Thor's Hammer and then start from there to try and break the longest solo polar record unsupported in history. So if I can pull this one off, there'll be no one who's ever done more distance solo in any arena, whether it's desert, ocean, um, snow. So this is another world record? Yeah, yeah. Who has the last record? So there's a bit of an argument on this one. There's uh, an incredibly tough Norwegian Special Forces soldier called Ruin Geddes, who, amazing guy, he smokes a pipe while he's on expedition, which, you know, you're at altitude, you're at the edge of your physical endurance, and then you throw a pipe in. Yeah. So he's just super tough um he did a crossing of antarctica of 4814 kilometers probably like i'm thinking late 80s so that record is held for a long long time two years ago mike horn did an incredible journey traversing from similar point to me nova Skye region um right across the continent and then out through de mont d'urville on the french coast so basically came out through tasmania um, and that was the original journey that I wanted to do. And I've been lobbying government for permission to do that for about four years when Mike stepped up. And he just said F you to the establishment, did the second half of the journey illegally. And as a result, I thought, okay, well, that record's gone. We'll find, have to find a different journey. Um, he set the record at 5,200. But then about three months after the journey, he admitted to taking support at the South Pole. So he took a meal at the South Pole. And I don't know why, I think it was a bit of an F you to the establishment, but basically you can't claim to be unsupported if you take support, you, you know, whether you're giving an F you to the establishment or, or whatever, you still got to go by the category. So it just meant that okay, well, Rune is the target to go for. And then when we were designing this adventure, Simon and I sat down and the whole family was involved and and we just could not get permission from anyone to let us cross East Antarctica. And I flew down to to Hobart, met with the Australian Antarctic Division. It was pretty plain that without a massive change in policy, I wasn't going to get through there. So we were almost at a point of giving up and we're, this is back in March, and bearing in mind I've been training for nearly six months by this time on the understanding that permission was granted. There was a change in, in government, and that didn't help. A lot of the people I'd had contact with lost their jobs. 
So I was back to square one and a little bit heartbroken at the time. And then I'm having a beer at, at this brewery in Hobart with kind of drowning our sorrows. I had a wind chart up with live wind readings. Jason Markland, the filmmaker, who who basically just lost his gig, Nat Geo commissioned him to make a film of the journey. And without permission, he's lost a year of his life as well and probably 100000 bucks. So he's he's gone. Yeah. So he's depressed. We, we order our first pint and I lay out the map of Antarctica and Jason's looking at it, looking at the wind and he, he just has this offhand comment. He said, listen, why can't you go from Novo to the Pole of Inaccessibility to the South Pole, which is what I had originally planned, up over Dome Argus, which was what I'd originally planned. But from Dome Argus, we planned to go to Casey Station, which is south of Tasmania, um, and then home. But that was the leg we just couldn't get permission from. And Jason looked at it and said, why can't you, you return back to your start point? And I said, Jason, it doesn't work like that. Like, to do that distance, I need wind. To do that distance, I need kites. You can't just suddenly turn around having been blown all the way up to Omagus and then suddenly get prevailing wind behind you again, you're going to be wind in your face the whole way home. It's Speaking, not really possible. Just for the people that haven't heard that, the, the last episode we did, you do it on skis um, being towed with kites, like wind power. Yeah. And this is how you, you cross these distances. And that's why like, in, a, in a day just hauling, I'd be lucky to do 10 kilometres in deep snow. Like it's, and... And mentally and physically, it's backbreaking. That's why Colin O'Brady's journey last year is so amazing. Um, yeah. Major Rudd's journey last year. If you if you want to look at two incredible journeys, Colin O'Brady, Major Rudd last year, phenomenal, um, because there's no kites. The kites give me the ability to do 100, 200, 300, even 400K in a day if I can stay on my feet. Um, I mean, it's still grueling, it's still brutal, but it's nothing compared to man-hauling. So I need the wind at my back. I can't have it in my face. You, you just can't kite upwind that distance with a heavy load. So we're sitting there, and then uh, I just look at the wind chart, and there's this dead zone with no air over Dome A because it's so high, all the wind rolls off its side. So right on the top, nothing. And then I look, and there's this semicircular anti-clockwise wind pattern from the backside of Dome A away from the Tasmanian side that rolls counterclockwise all around the edge of the continent and brings you back to Nova Sky Station. And I'm thinking, okay, this could just be one day. Yeah, I was going to say, this is a pattern. This is it. could be one day in 100, so let's not get excited about it. Um, but I said, Jason, you might just be onto something. Let's watch this. So over the next month, watch, watch, watch. It gets better and better and better. As the months go through winter, it changes a little bit, but then coming back into summer... Even now, it's just perfect. So then I send my route off to Mark de Kaiser in Belgium, who's my wind guy, and he's just a genius with wind. I said, Mark, I think this can be done. Can it be done? And he measures the wind for me at 10 metres and 15 metres off the deck, which is where the kite's going to be operational. Comes back after about two weeks and says, listen, I've, I've triple-checked this. Um, these are the predictions, and it's even better than what I had said. So of the whole journey, probably 95% can be done by kite. 5%, which is 300 kilometres still, has to be hauled up over the top of Dome Argus. But it looks doable. So then I change my application 
um, and we need permission from the Russians, the Chinese, the Americans, the French and the Australians. And over the, the last three months, we've managed to get all of them, including the Australians, uh, three weeks ago. So we're a go now. The Russians wow. have been incredible because they, from the top of Dome Argus, um, there's no aircraft capable of getting to you from a base anywhere in Antarctica. So the problem the Australians had was without search and rescue cover, we're not going to let you go in there. So I had to find someone who would do my search and rescue cover if, if things go horribly wrong. So I approached TAC out of Cape Town, they're a Russian-based company, and they were like, listen, we're arguing amongst ourselves. Some of us think it's too radical a plan. Some of us want to support you. We know you. We know you're responsible and... You're not going to create a scandal. Let's argue it. So we've got this tense two weeks while they're arguing amongst their own team, going, are they going to support? Are they not? And then the word comes back, hey, if you agree that if when you get to the South Pole, you're damaged or you're behind schedule, you cancel, then we'll support you. And I'm like, well, okay, how are you going to cover Dome A? And they said, listen, we'll move fuel from Novo to a base I never knew they had called Perseus, which is just, if you imagine the clock face, say Dome is in the middle of the clock, Novalis Sky Station is at, is at, say, 10 o'clock, and they've moved fuel to midday, which is closer. So they can fly from 10 o'clock to midday and then refuel and then fly to Dome A, pick me up, and then reverse that process to get you out. So by moving fuel, they were then able to provide search and rescue support and they gave us basically the quote for everything and and then obviously we've gone into overdrive to fundraise to to get it to happen and then with the support of an incredible family in sydney the horden family um who were the original supporters of mawson's expedition in 1911 we've been able to tick the final box and we're good to go so wow. it's just been the most radical process. But in amongst all of this, you're packing gear, you're training, and you're conscious that there's so much energy gone into the logistics that you don't feel totally prepared. Um, and getting some family time in, in amongst it as well, it's been quite a juggle. Yeah, and so and, and again, you're doing this one for breast cancer? Yeah, so absolutely passionate about um, getting every woman in Australia access to a breast care nurse. So... The thing with a breast care nurse is it's very similar to my connection in a solo polar journey back home through the sat phone to Sarah. So every night I'll talk to her, explain what I'm going through. She'll kind of break it down, stop me from winding up too much, keep me mentally sane, on point, and just help me make good decisions. But also having someone on the sideline who's not fatigued, they're not going through hell. They're helping you make good decisions. The breast care nurse is exactly that for a woman going through a solo breast cancer journey. And I think that's why I relate so well to them and why when we've got, say, a woman in Mount Isa with breast cancer or someone in a station outside Mount Isa having to drive four hours to, to get some counselling and support, you know, it's it's not okay. You know, we need we need every woman in Australia, and one in seven will get diagnosed with this disease to have access and support. And so, I, that's why I'm so passionate about it. And and it gives me rocket fuel. But because before I go, I'll go to the Alamander Hospital here on the coast and sit with um, a group of women going through chemo, going through 
radiation therapy and just lock away their images, their faces in my mind so that when I get to a point, you know, halfway up Dome Argus where there's no wind, wind's in my face, things aren't going to plan, there's no chance of me quitting. Yeah. Oh, my God. So from from the last trip, the one that we did the, the podcast on last time, crossing Antarctica, have you this time, have you thought about the mistakes you might have made then and, and you're implementing different strategies this time or like how have you are you approaching this one differently yeah i mean every mistake and the cool thing last time i was learning from other people's mistakes so i read about a hundred journals from people's previous expeditions and you just saw me putting the fuel bottles into the sleds using packing foam um you know that was something i learned from multiple expeditions where they had fuel bottles move in the sled and then burst you know rubber up against the ski or or, um, you know, you know, multiple different things that I learned from other people. And then I made my own mistakes, multiple. You know, the three big ones were probably gear selection. Some of my gear was unnecessary and I picked the wrong gear, but I, I didn't know. The sled selection was the wrong shape, wrong size. And I had food that burst out. Um, the gear selection uh, in clothing meant that I had this system where the kite could pull up the jacket, pull up the undergear and expose your belly. And um, that led to frostbite. So, yeah, you know, frostbite injury, which yeah. is an insane part of that story you told me last time. So that's go to Diaries of the Wild Ones. I think it was episode 19 or yeah. 20 that we did with you. And it is absolutely insane. So um, how, do you, how are you even training for this? I saw yesterday you were in a freezer, like living on the Gold Coast. Living on the Gold Coast, where it's tropical, warm, we don't really have much of a winter, and you're training here to go to Antarctica. How are you doing this? Yeah, I mean, it puts us at a real disadvantage because, um, you know, the guys that are setting these records that we're battling against are Scandinavians. They've got antifreeze in their blood. They're genetically, you know, Viking descendant. So there's a toughness there beyond measure. And, you know, the Jamaican bobsled here <laughs> team is getting into a commercial freezer yesterday at minus 15 for two hours just to check the goggle system. Yeah. You know, I, you know it's crazy. I, I, we've just had to be creative. I, to simulate sand, uh, snow, I'm hauling on the, on the sand with heavy tyres and that's just strengthening up the back, the glutes, the hip flexors, everything that are going to get hammered for hour after hour on skis. Um, you know, that's worked really well. And the benefit is that you're not uncomfortable for your whole training, whereas the boys up north, they, they step outside and it's minus 30. But it means when they land, they're already acclimatised, they're ready to go. Um, one worry for me on this one is that I'm going from sea level to 9,000 feet with no acclimatisation period. So I'll just have to take it really easy yeah. the first two or three days and make sure I don't make any mistakes because altitude um a sudden drop to you know the the plateau will be well below minus 25 um you know your window of making mistakes pretty wide um so just i think simplifying it in my mind and almost treating it like a batsman going in you want to hit a century you don't start cracking sixes on the first ball just a couple of few nice straight shots get settled in start seeing the ball 
can you train in an altitude room at all or anything like that? Would, would that be beneficial? Yeah, I think that'd be good. We'll probably in the next three weeks or so get up to Burley. There's a altitude tank yeah. up there. Um, it's so hard though because, I mean, at the end of the day, it's three quarters mental. And I think as long as your gear's right and you just go, hey, I've done everything I can. Um, for me, it's about having three options for every piece of kit. So... You know, I've got two satellite phones and then an Iridium inReach, Garmin inReach, um, so that I've got one sat phone dies, I go to sat phone two, that dies, I go to the inReach and I'm still still able to communicate. Stove, if the stove dies, I've got a secondary stove. If that dies, I've got spare parts to build a third stove. So everything's got a triple redundancy and just absolutely being able to repair and fix every piece of kit in there. Um going over and over and over that gear so you know it in your sleep yeah are you feeling how are you feeling physically and mentally are are you feeling you're ready for it like yeah it's funny you almost get to i don't know you're you're in the waiting room and you can hear you can hear other fights in front of you and you're you're getting amped up but you just want to get into the ring yeah you know there's i think with this one for me it's always a journey home because if i focus on home Obviously, I'm really disciplined the first half. I don't think about family, but I, I do think about getting home so that I'm cautious um, and push as hard as I can every day to get that extra kilometre. And, you know, when you feel like quitting at the end of the day, you go, listen, let's just do one more kilometre, one more kilometre, just inch every day, get as much as you can out of it because it, it's a journey home for are me. You, are you scared? There, yeah, Dome scares me a little bit. Um, just because I don't, no one's ever climbed it. No one's ever done it on foot or on ski. The base there, there's usually a Chinese base there, and for some reason they've abandoned it this year. So their permission came with a big, you can go but don't touch anything that we've left up there. So I'm, part of me is like, why, why are there no humans on top of Dome A this year? So you're kind of, I think it's the fear of the unknown, you know, but the other side of that is this is genuinely a voyage of exploration. From South Pole to Dome A, none of that ice has been crossed before. There's no human foot been on there. No Australian's been to the Pole of Inaccessibility before. So it has a whole bunch of first, first, first on it, which, you know, in 2019, to find an ice feature that's never had someone go on foot up it is crazy they've people have flown there and landed on the top of it but nobody's ever approached from the coast from sea to summit yeah um nobody's ever gone from the pole up it so whilst it's fear there i think it's measured and we've got enough sensible redundancies in place that you know if things are going horribly wrong i, I don't want to come home in a bag so i feel like i'm I don't have that white line fever so much that I'll push myself to death. That's not going to happen. So the fear would come from unknown crevassing or, you know, snow collapse that you don't predict. Some event that we haven't been able to foresee, that would be kind of the fear. I think the endurance and the day-to-day discomfort, the sheer length of the journey, that I can handle. It's it's more just... The unknown... Uh, but also, no, listen, you can't be in that environment and not make mistakes. So understanding that I made a lot of mistakes last time. We made no mistakes in Greenland. I'd love, 
a Greenland type expedition, not a 47 below type expedition. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think the fear is manageable. Fuck, oh, I'm so scared for you. I'm, I'm, for, well, for one, I'm honoured to be able to talk to you three weeks out, um, knowing that you're going for this wild, amazing, crazy world record attempt. Like, think about it. You're doing something that no one on this planet has ever done. And that's, yeah, that is, I feel honoured, you know, to have that ability. And I kind of feel like it's the reward for 20 years of careful adventuring. You know, I've still, I, I, I'm very injury-free going into this one. Um, I feel like I've got the capacity, the ability. Um, and, you know, I'm also aware David Lama recently killed in a, in a really simple avalanche in backcountry Canada was probably the best climber on planet Earth. Um, and he just made a simple mistake, and it can, it can go horribly wrong. But I kind of feel on this one that it would be different if we were crossing avalanche corridors or, or if I was climbing the Somovacan Glacier again. That, that capacity for sudden death, it was really high on the last one. I, I kind of feel like whilst this is on paper a grander journey it's a brutal journey because of its length no one's ever done this distance so what does the human body look like after getting smashed for 5,000 kilometers you still got a thousand k to go home what is what is what do you feel like at that point uh but i feel like the the window for sudden death is relatively small which is nice you i can't even fathom what you're about to do everything you're saying i'm picturing it and it just scares the hell out of me like i don't i can't i don't know you're the only person i know and I, i'm sure in your world you've met so many wild adventurers that or people that do these kind of expeditions that might be up for it and might be able to do it but i just can't it is just so wild and it's so scary and and, and it's one of those things that i think like all our prayers are going to be there with you and for you. And um, is there going to be a way for people to be able to follow your journey while they do it so we can have that, those prayers for you, we can watch that, or we can like kind of support you in that way? Yeah, the really exciting thing with this one, Aaron, is Pivotel and Iridium have come on really strong and given me tech that's never been used before in the field so we'll have a better connection than any other expedition ever has it's 160 times more powerful um in terms of its bandwidth to what i had last time so i had this freaking dodgy setup i think it was 1.4 kilobytes per second or something and this thing is 356 kilobytes which is still similar to the old dial-up thing we used to have 10 15 years ago for the internet um but it means I can get audio files out, which I, I would love you to probably grab each audio file and then we'll just collect. So it'll be literally day one, a one minute sound bite from me. And then we can just pass all them up so people can just listen to the progression. And you'll probably hear the highs and lows and the degeneration in my voice, body. Like I, I know what I'm going into. Like I know that you're putting your body in harm's way i know what happens you sound awful by day 50 you know you're not the same person you were day one you just don't have the reserves you can't pretend to be energetic and enthusiastic 
Um, so you'll you'll feel that degeneration. We'll talk through the highs and lows, you know, the mistakes, things that went well, what gear's going well. So that's awesome. But we'll also get um, video feed out for the first time, 20 to 30 second video bites, um, you know, gear breakages, repairs, you know, little pieces to camera. So the exciting thing for this one, it, it will be more interactive yeah. than any adventure I've done. And I think for people to really feel Antarctica, it'll be powerful having video images come out. So where are they going to be if you find that? You're going to be putting video images out on what platform? Like? Yeah, it'll be out on my Instagram feed, Dr. Jeff Wilson, but also on thelongestjourney.com.au. So www.thelongestjourney.com.au. Um, we'll also pump it through to you to put together and, and we can, you know, do probably one month of sound bites oh, I'd love at, to. at a time. And um, that, you know, a lot of it depends on how the journey goes as well. Like if if it's more brutal than I think, then you're probably that amount of energy to film and edit and punch out through the comm system is probably limited but when yeah, things because you've got to stay focused just stay focused and I'll, I'll be really honest with that you know you might find that there's a blog out that comes out saying listen under the pump not going to put a blog out today but going to try and communicate daily and because it's such a long expedition people have the ability to get on board the other thing if they can get um we're not sure how we're going to get these out but these little pink bands basically through endurance we conquer which is one of shackleton's quotes they've got the website on the inside really encouraging people to wear them put them on the day that i start what and what date is that november the 5th november the 5th so put the band on and then basically every day you'll get up and realize i'm still out there i'm still making distance um still battling and it's similar to you know breast cancer journey there's katie carlisle who we did the crossing for six years ago is still battling so she's still out there and you know a lot of these women are it, it doesn't end when they get an all clear diagnosis they're still on edge like you're walking through a crevasse field for the rest of their life waiting for this hideous disease to pop its head up again so remembering what these women go through it'll be similar to that you'll see that pink band and realize Jeff's still out there let's keep spreading the word getting people to donate through the website there's a donate button on there as well next to the blog. All of those funds go straight to the McGrath Foundation to get nurses into rural Australia. Really exciting. I, I, I'd love if we if we could raise a million bucks through this one for McGrath, that'd be phenomenal. But you know, if we raise fifty grand, well, so be it. But so was it, so let's just reiterate that the easiest way for someone to donate um, for this this expedition you're about to do for this world record is go I'm, you, I'm shaking i'm shaking <laughs> right now but it's to go to the longest journey.com yep and at .com.au the and then there's a feature on the website there where you can donate through yeah it's the just mat- a straight. donate button and that'll take you straight to mcgrath but it'll add to our tally so yeah all of the funds go to the mcgrath foundation direct they've got very low management less than 11 percent. yeah so night you know what does that leave 89 percent goes to nurses um, and none of it, the expedition is funded by corporates and by the Wilson family, basically, and Vetlove. So, um, which is your own company, Vetlove? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, so a lot of this is also self-funded. Yeah, yeah, the majority. So, I mean, and, and that's kind of, 
a good thing in a way because it means that I'm not beholden to any one company. I, I make good decisions. I don't, I don't feel like I'm pushed by a sponsor into making bad decisions. Yeah. Um, but it does put a bit more pressure on on family. So at the end of the day, if we if we raise funds for McGrath, then I can sleep at night feeling like we've done something worthwhile. Yeah. And so right now, um, I know like you're obviously sponsored by Wild Earth. Yeah, and they're an amazing. Phenomenal. Yeah, and so that, they're providing you with a lot of the gear. I, I've seen your Arctic suit, which is absolutely insane. I see the big Wild Earth logo there. Um, who else is helping you with this? Uh, Pivotel have been freaking awesome. So Wild, the key sponsors would be, um, better not forget anyone here, but uh, Wild Earth, Pivotel, Vet Love, uh, Backcountry Foods, Marmot, Salomon, uh, Rhythm, Ski snow down in kuma they've been phenomenal with gear um scarpa boots you know we've just had little things along the way um blackboard coffee on the coast provided me this freaking grunty coffee it's gonna I'll, I'll break the record very quickly powered by that stuff yeah yeah <laughs> it smelled nice i was smelling it just yeah, before yeah. um this is something that i'm so happy that i can have this chat with you and and and, and add a platform to get something like this out because basically you're about to go to war you're about to go to war and fight for a cause that you believe in and it's just like that is so inspiring there's so much strength there like i'm sitting here next to you right now just shaking um i'm pretty much have so much fear just for you like i I know what you're well i don't actually know but I, i can imagine what you're about to come up against and i just can't even fathom that and and I would love to really, really reiterate to the people that are listening to this that this is something that would be really amazing to support because you have this guy here that's like really, really going out of his comfort zone, really pushing himself to the limit mentally and extremely physically to really like change something, to really support something that is helping other human beings that are like are in need. And it's like you're risking so much to to help like other human beings and that is just phenomenal it's just like something that um and that's that's a way that we can also help other human beings is by able to donate and support you and and um and yeah and and donate to the mcgrath foundation yeah you've got you've given me the shakes man this is (laughs) might be that blackboard coffee no it's just (laughs) i just can't I just can't get over what you're doing. It's just absolutely amazing. It's like I'm sitting here with someone that is literally about to do something that no one on this planet has even got close to doing. You're going for this attempt and it's for such an amazing cause. And I think the the difference to this conversation is that the boxes have been ticked. You know, I've had interviews and conversations over the last 12 months where, you know, your faith eye, your image of it happening is so strong that you can't in conversation admit that you have real fears that it mightn't come off from a permission point of view. And you feel a party is a little bit like you're a show pony, you're a charlatan, you know, you need to tell this person there's a chance it won't come off. But then that's admitting that you don't believe you can push it through. And uh, the beautiful thing about today is it's done. Like I've all the permissions against all odds are through from all the relevant authorities the finance has been uh, ticked off 
through a great final donation and support from the Horden family who have a history of supporting polar travel and that story alone is amazing you know um so Mount Horden and Cape Horden are named after the Horden who supported Mawson's expedition and they're back again supporting you know me in this potentially my final polar journey and whilst there's an element of concern and fear which would be sensible without it you'd be stupid um, there's a huge excitement now because it's on and uh, we're packing the sleds like literally when we finish talking I'll pack the sleds for the last time and they'll be shipped to Cape Town ready to wait for me to be there in a few weeks um, so it's on it's, it's happening and uh, you know I really hope that the whole of Australia follows it because we we will not be in a position to challenge the Norwegians the Scandinavians the Canadians the North Americans in this field for a long long time yeah because the the constellation of skills to get yourself into a solo position capable of of covering the distance and staying alive is so unique yeah um that you know it's taken me 25 years to develop um so i'm excited to to bring them all together to try and make no mistake and to get the job done yeah yeah, and Australia's backing you. Like, think about that to the rest of the world, that, that an Australian can, can do this. Crazy. If, 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 if you pull this off, it's like, wow, an Australian holds that record yeah, against enough. all the Scandinavians, the people that grew up, those tough men, the Russians, the, the Norwegians, the, oh, my God. Yeah, it's so funny. Yeah, amazing. Mate, we better go pack some sleds. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is an absolute honour, absolute honour, and I um, I'm going to be praying for you the whole time, and 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 I just can't wait to follow the journey and and just see, just see what you do. Just oh, it's exciting, and I'll, I'll be connecting with you from there, which is exciting. Yeah, good. Um, you know, just the sound of boots crunching on Antarctic ice, and you know, walking on ice that no man has ever, you know crossed yeah is going to be really exciting and and this is what you're about is getting people off the sofa so this is right out the far right of the bell curve but if it gets one person off the sofa get into the bush just camp by yourself for a night listen listen to the forest start realizing that we've got to start looking after planet earth there's there's no planet b uh, we've got to start looking after it. And these places are getting brutalised by the changing climate and we've got to get serious and protect it. Yeah, what a great message. Awesome, good, mate. Good luck and thank yeah. you. Good luck and thank you. <laughs> okay, guys, so Jeff Wilson and the team behind The Longest Journey aim to raise $250,000 to support the ongoing work by the McGrath Foundation. By the time Jeff completes his solo and unsupported expedition across Antarctica, he intends to break the current record of 5,200 kilometres for the longest solo unsupported polar journey in human history, crossing the coldest naturally occurring point on planet Earth, the summit of Dome Argus. No human 
human has climbed Dome Argus on foot, a true adventure first. So this expedition will take 80 to 90 days, and when completed, will be the longest unsupported polar journey ever made by man. So this is going to be such a grueling challenge for Jeff, not just physically, but mentally, but he will be motivated throughout his challenge by the selfless donations that are pledged by all of us back home, as we all work together towards raising funds for a wonderful cause. We are all reminded that there are many women, men, family and friends being impacted by this devastating disease. The McGrath Breast Care Nurses provide support and guidance through a difficult time for sufferers and family alike. You can help pledge a donation today. So please, please guys, go to thelongestjourney.com.au and donate. Or you can go to fundraise.mcgrathfoundation.com.au slash thelongestjourney. People can also buy their Longest Journey pink wristbands at wildearth.com.au to support Jeff and this adventure, with all money raised going directly to the McGrath Foundation. So please, people, please, let's all make this happen, and let's get to that goal of $250,000. Just say... So if you like this episode, please feel free to share it and leave a rating. And if you have or know of anyone with a wild story, please get in contact with me through my Instagram, Aaron underscore Shanks, or the website, diariesofthewildones.com, because I'd love to sit down over a beer or a coffee and hear it. Do it like a double.